0: This is BallotVox, the Pointers coverage of the upcoming 2022 provincial and municipal elections. Reporting today, Sam Graywall.
1: Much of Ontario is preparing for March break. Uh, students will be out of school. A lot of families are going away. Even those who are staying in the province will get some much needed rest and relaxation. But when we get back from March break, towards the end of the month, there's going to be a real sprint to the June 2nd provincial election. And one of the things that Ballot Box and the Pointer is going to be really paying attention to, spending quite a bit of time on during that sprint to the election, are issues around climate change and the environment and whether or not some of these key concerns could swing the election or make the difference between a majority government and a minority government. There's a lot of stuff that we want to touch on. We're going to talk about a few of those things and whether or not the PC government has been doing what it needs to do on some of the major files regarding climate change and the environment. Joel Whitnabel of The Pointer is with us. He's our senior journalist and managing editor, does a lot of reporting as well. Joel, can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you have focused on and tie them to the election?
0: Well, certainly what's become abundantly clear over the last few months that you know it's been repeatedly stressed by the IPCC and other experts and and bodies that focus on climate change and climate change research is that we need elected officials to start taking this climate crisis seriously we've seen the promises for years here in Peel you know we have all three of the municipalities have climate emergency declarations but when you really dig into, how they've responded and the decisions that they're making, they a lot of the times contradict themselves or uh, trip themselves up with making decisions, whether that's about land use or whether that's about budgetary things, investing in green transit, what have you. They're not adequately addressing those issues through a climate lens or they're not putting the money to actually respond to a real climate emergency. If they took that climate emergency seriously, it's clear that they would be spending their money in a different way. And now most recently, we've had the IPCC come out and make it, I, I think, even more clearer than their 2018 report, which which got a lot of attention and which the Pointer reported on heavily, which said at that time that municipal elected officials play a key role, but also there needs to be uh, collaboration across the board in terms of municipal uh, local officials, provincial officials, federal officials, and just collaboration across the globe, because it makes sense when you think about if, if a municipality is unable to meet its climate change goals, especially in the GTA, Ontario's most you know, populous region, if those municipalities can't meet their goals, how is the province supposed to meet its goals? And Ontario being the most populated province in Canada, if it can't meet its climate change goals, well, then the country can't meet its climate change goals and so on and so forth it's just become exceedingly clear that a lot of it comes down to a failure of leadership. A lot of the times you see it from a corporate environment, whether it's the big gas companies or plastic manufacturers or drink companies that use a lot of plastic, they try and put the responsibility on the consumer or on the individual to change their ways. The narrative has shifted that now it's, we need our elected officials to change their ways. And the quote that stands out to me the most in terms of this is there was the press conference for the most recent IPCC report. And uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres said that the abdication of leadership on the climate file is criminal. When you start to think about what is happening because of our lack of action on the climate file, especially in some of the world's most vulnerable areas that have some of the most vulnerable populations, they're the ones that are getting impacted the most already by flooding, by droughts. Famine, all these sorts of things. These aren't things that are happening in the future. They're happening right now. It's become clear that we need our elected officials to take this seriously.
1: I want to point to a couple of different things. I, I'm not going to spend too much time on my first point because I mentioned it in quite a bit of detail uh, a few months ago. But when we look at some of the policy areas that the PC government has gotten behind, and we look at some of their policy position on, for example, the carbon tax and, and carbon reduction, obviously, it's been well reported extensively that the PC government, the Doug Ford government has been opposed to the federal cap and trade program and is challenging it through the courts. But what we haven't seen, and the and the Ontario Auditor, Auditor General, Bonnie Lissick, has pointed this out, we haven't seen the replacement of a carbon tax in Ontario with any firm policies that have had actual investments behind them and cohesive action to ensure that the goals of these policies will be met. And I'll I'll give one example, that when the PCs came into power, out of one side of their mouth saying they didn't support a carbon tax, but out of the other side of their mouth claiming they were going to reduce carbon emissions dramatically, one of the key focuses, for example, was the increase in electric vehicle sales. And they claimed that by significantly increasing uh, electric vehicle sales over the course of about a decade, and, and I'm talking increasing them like, you know, about 10 times, the PCs claimed they would dramatically reduce carbon emissions. And as I've mentioned, and we've mentioned, and others have mentioned, you can't make those types of claims, but then in your policy, you have nothing in your, in your in your budgets to support infrastructure for electric vehicles. You immediately cancel the electric vehicle rebate and subsidy program, which resulted in about close to 50% reduction in electric vehicle sales in Ontario. And then at the same time, say, we're going to enact policies that are going to increase EV sales to lower carbon emissions, but I'll move off the EV issue. So that's a clear hypocrisy, right? They claim they're going to dramatically, dramatically expand sales of EVs, but the PC government cuts the EV subsidy, like literally eliminates it down to zero. You used to be able to get as much as I, I think that the high end was around five thousand dollars. It depended on the vehicle, but you know you could get you know a substantial amount, you know, under the previous Liberal government EV subsidy. And when the PCs came in and just completely eliminated that, I think voters need to ask themselves questions. Is it a government, as the IPC says, that's really serious about this or they're trying to dupe all of us? The lack of investment, as I said, in in infrastructure. But what I really want to talk about, Joel, and, and maybe I'll get you to start off. When we look at land use, that's what I want to talk about today. These MZOs that are being issued by the province, municipal zoning orders to take over local planning, the approach to broader use of land for growth and development, residential, commercial growth, putting in highways, the Bradford Bypass, the 413, like I said, the use of the MZOs. Can you talk a little bit, Joel, about what this is doing to the overall approach in this province? toward conservation and sustainability, you know, we're seeing sort of the opposite. Instead of conserving the natural world, there seems to be a natural, a land use policy under this PC government that's doing the opposite.
0: I think we've done enough reporting to really highlight that the, the PC government is no friend to the environment. This isn't just an environmental story. It's a financial one as well. And I think that this is something that people should really pay attention to because, a lot of the times when you look at the, the stories about conservation, you look at sort of this urban sprawl or the developers versus the conservationists or the residents who want to protect a forest versus the warehouse development that's coming in. It's always about protecting this green space, protecting the habitat for these wildlife, which is critical because we are in the midst of a biodiversity crisis. We are in the midst of a climate crisis. And so protecting our natural spaces is becoming more clear that that is our best weapon to mitigate a lot of the impacts of climate change. But when you flip that on its head and when you think about the services that these natural spaces provide to municipalities, they provide a significant monetary value. Whether it's flood mitigation, whether it's air quality, whether it's temperature decrease, these trees absorb pollution to improve air quality. Uh, They provide shade that reduces the urban heat island effect so it keeps cities cooler. All of these things, if a city needs to do it on their own to mitigate the impacts of climate change, that's all going to cost money. That's all going to cost the taxpayers money. When the wetland is paved over and that area floods, the city has to spend millions of dollars to either repair the damage that's been done and or invest in flood mitigation. Look at how much the Riverwalk is costing in Brampton. Look at how much damage there was after that flooding in Mississauga. All of those are the result of urbanization and building in areas that we shouldn't or we didn't know would cause these problems. We know now that if we had just left those wetlands alone or left some of these green spaces alone, they would have done all of that work for us and we wouldn't have had to spend millions of dollars. So for a PC government to talk about being fiscally responsible and not investing in natural climate solutions or promoting forms of development that sprawl across green space and destroy all of that natural value. The two, again, it just goes to what you said, San, it's the definition of hypocrisy. And I don't, we're past the point now where the governments can claim that they don't know about these things. It's become abundantly clear that just leaving these green spaces alone will save us millions and millions of dollars over the next decades, billions probably, as these impacts of climate change become more severe. We're gonna need them more and more. But the problem is that there's a timeline here because at some point those natural assets, they're unable to really mitigate the impacts of a change in climate. They become useless after a while because the impacts from climate change are just too severe for them to be able to handle in an adequate period of time. So we have to end up trying to spend the money to save ourselves anyways. And so I think that that is something when you look at land use, and making decisions about trying to accommodate the growing population in Ontario. Because this is the biggest conundrum. You talk about how quickly Ontario is growing, and how much more people are going to be living here over the next 20 years. These people do need somewhere to live. And so that is consistently used as a rationalization for approving more developments, approving more sprawl. And I I think that that narrative needs to shift to include the climate in the discussions, because if we don't, we're going to essentially eliminate all of these natural assets that can help save us from not only you know climate catastrophe, but also save us millions and millions of dollars and keep our taxes from having to go through the roof to try and pay for all of these things in the future.
1: Yeah, what I'm concerned about is the lack of, when we take a look at both through budget documents and through legislation and sort of official policy released by the PC government since they've been in power from 2018, is, is this this lack of information and in detail about its approach to land use and growth. I just want to put a few things into perspective. So the Greater Golden Horseshoe, it accounts for a little more than a quarter of Canada's population. So the Greater Golden Horseshoe the population's approaching, like this year, about 10.5 million people, and the Canadian population is approaching about 39 million. So it's it's well above 25% of Canada's populations that, that have settled and live in the Greater Golden Horseshoe. And in about 30 years, by about 2050, the population is going to hit, of the Greater Golden Horseshoe... It's going to hit approximately, I've seen different estimates, but let's say approximately about 15 million residents. So to accommodate, you know, a city that would be about more than two and a half times the size of Toronto, that's going to be settling into the area. How are we going about it? Like what has this province done, the provincial government? And I'll read to you from a recent report by the auditor general it didn't surprise me but just when you see it written in a report it it reminds you of how alarming you know the reality is uh, Bonnie Lissick in, in a recent report on land use Bonnie Lissick being the Ontario Auditor General she essentially said that the province it does not have any data and it doesn't have any information to really show if growth planning Under legislation, right, Places to Grow Act came into effect in 2006. It's the legislation that's supposed to control growth to prevent sort of the sprawling, low-density built form that's dominated the greater golden horseshoe for the last 40 years. That piece of legislation was brought in to stop that from happening. But the report from the Auditor General essentially said there's been almost no way to determine if – that legislation has been followed if municipalities have abided by some of the mechanisms, you know, the, the legislative tools that the province tried to introduce back in 2006 to control sprawl, to bring in higher density, to make growth more sustainable, more environmentally friendly, you know, more amenable to a lot of urban built form and the expectation of a lot of residents who want to live in more of an an, an urban type of environment. You know, they do not want to have to get into their car to get some milk or to pay a bill or, you know, to go to the nearest hiking trail or or nice path. They want the best of both worlds. And it's a lot to ask for. It's a lot to sort of say, hey, we're going to Manhattanize Southern Ontario. So it's going to be super urban, vertical, great subway access, great transit access. Oh, and you're gonna have Central Park smack in the middle of some, you know, residential neighborhoods so people can get their green space and their exercise and whatnot. I, I get it. It's very difficult. But the auditor has said, and what we know is particularly under the PC government, even any you know, small victories that were being achieved, success stories like Halton, parts of it anyway, you know, North Oakville, which brought in a really brilliant master plan for the northern part of its municipality, which was very much a mix of, you know, more density, you know, more urban design with some suburban features. You know, Milton, it's done a fantastic job bringing in more density, accommodating growth in a in a responsible way, but not getting any support from the provincial government. The Liberals prior to the PCs didn't support density, didn't build new go-train stations, new go-train parking lots, new schools, no ho- new hospitals, new commuter access for the main higher-order transit lines like GO, and we just have not seen that done. And with the PCs, what we've seen is this reversion back to developer-driven policies, where through the Places to Grow Act in 2006, when it came into effect, you kind of saw a little bit of a governor placed on the development community with density targets enforced, with controls on how far you could expand the municipal boundary, You can't just keep sprawling and sprawling. You know, the legislation was designed to say, no, we have enough space in the municipal boundary. You have to use it in a more responsible manner. Bring in density, plan around transit, bring in transit corridors, invest in your local transit system, attract builders and higher end developers, big investors who buy into more vertical growth situate services and commercial offerings around that type of growth. But what we've seen since the Ford government has come in is the use of these MZOs and other instruments that have, like I said, that have made things revert back to the days when developers ran the show, speculating on land, trying to expand the urban boundary, encroaching on the green belt. The province can simply issue an MZO to spring it so you don't have to abide by the province's own legislation. You can circumvent it. You don't have to follow local planning principles. You can circumvent it. Other things that the province is doing in terms of expediting these development applications, for example, not pushing proper environmental assessments, not allowing the conservation authorities to have proper oversight over the application and development process. So A lot of these things that have been done under the Ford government that have a dire, dire consequence, more sprawl, more highways that they want to build, encroaching on the green belt, getting away from transit, you know, more reliance on the car. And I just wonder, Joel, we're just talking about these things generally. Like as we move closer to the election, we're going to bring in guests that we're already lining up who are going to really, really zero in on on specifically what the PCs have done, what Doug Ford has done. But speaking more generally, do you think that, you know, building the Bradford Bypass, pushing the 413 highway, issuing all these MZOs, clamping down on conservation authorities and stripping away their authority, getting rid of natural spaces, disregarding, you know, species at risk, all of this stuff... Do you have any sense, Joel, as to whether or not these things are resonating with voters, that they're starting to frustrate and anger enough voters so these will become true ballot issues come June?
0: I believe so. You just touched on the list that you just put out. Each of those issues, there's an overlap in terms of the amount of people that get upset about those issues. You know, people who are engaged with the Bradford Bypass or the 413, probably know about both of those issues. And so that's a collective group of people. The people who are engaged with conservation authorities, whether that's advocates or people who are just really dialed into that space, they're upset about those issues, but they're also probably upset about the 413 and the Bradford Bypass. You can drill down into some of these more niche topics that you know I've, I've reported on over the last year. You look at, Sam, we did that feature on the cormorant and the lack of study and scientific evidence to support the PC government's decision to allow hunters to kill 15 cormorants a day between, I believe it's September and December. And that story alone, I heard from countless people who were upset about just that issue. And there's a lot of people who are upset about a lot of the changes that the PC government has made to to land use and aggregate policy that impact migratory birds and their space. So that's another issue. So you add all of these up, and this is a significant amount of people that are really all starting to realize that they all have the same concerns, that we have a PC government that cares absolutely zero about the environment. You, you can't look at all of the decisions that they have made and think anything less. And even when they try and defend themselves, we just did that story on the their response to the endangered species audit, and we had a citizen reach out to us and essentially share a response that they received from the government when they raised concerns about the endangered species audit, which essentially showed that successive governments have failed to really take into account endangered species and the act and law that's meant to protect them when we're we're considering development applications. And the BC government's response to this resident was filled with misleading information about the PC government's actions on the endangered species file. And then when we did our story and tried to get clarification from the PC government, they doubled down on all of that. And so it's clear that this is a government that wants to deflect and essentially put up smoke screens around any of the decision-making that it's doing about the environment because their track record is abysmal. More and more and more people are starting to realize that. And all you need to do is look at some of these submissions to the environmental registry office or the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada when it came to the 413 and the bypass, there are thousands and thousands of people engaged on these issues, and even thousands that are willing to write to the government with concerns about these issues. And I think that that is a very clear indication that this is an engaged group of people that are willing to take this issue to the polls in June.
1: Joel thanks so much and like I said just continue to follow the pointer and on ballot box we're going to bring in a lot of guests to speak to these these specific issues around the climate change file the environmental file that's it for this week thanks for listening we hope you will join us next week
0: was hosted by wall produced by yours truly join us next week for continuing coverage of the upcoming provincial and municipal elections i'm jeff chalmers thank you for listening talk to you then